people just don't have frameworks of thinking about these things. I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm just here to quantify it. And once we quantify, you make your own decisions. Nobody should be able to tell you right, wrong, do this or do that. At that point, it is more so, here is the practical data. Now you make your own decision relative to that. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoyed the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Welcome to The Melting Pot with Dominic Monkhouse. This week, we're bringing you a recording of our live webinar special with Greg Crabtree. Greg, author of the Simple Numbers books, is famous for cutting through jargon and making his theories accessible. He also co-wrote a chapter of Vern Harnish's brilliant Scaling Up. So he's completely the type of person that we love to be able to bring you here at The Melting Pot. Dom really enjoyed chatting with Greg and we were so glad that the live audience had the opportunity to learn more. We really hope that you can take lots away from this too. And if you do, don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date. Enjoy. Greg, thank you very much indeed for coming on. You co-wrote the uh, the chapter in Scaling Up with Vern, and then you've got this Simple Numbers, and then recently you've done Simple Numbers 2.0. You've got some concepts that you want to Well, I'd really like to talk about and dig into labor efficiency ratio and launch capital. But why don't you just wind back and say, look, you know, you're an accountant, but you're an unusual accountant. You come at the numbers from a different perspective. So why don't we just say how you come at these things? Well, I think I think the vast majority of businesses struggle to understand financial truth. I mean, that's really the epidemic crisis in business data today, especially on the privately held business world, because there's just not a really developed sense of, you know, what truth is. I mean, you've got advisors that are, you know, directing people for tax minimization and it distorts data. You've got times that entrepreneurs are trying to scale and they're 100% focused on revenue. But it's like, well, are we profitable though? And how, how do we make money? You know, we can't just be changing four quarters for a dollar and think that that's success. And, and so what it really kind of led to was a, a career that, I mean, I'll, I'll just tell you, basic accounting is pretty boring. So, <laughs> so it was like, okay, well, what, what can I do that actually, one, is a little more interesting, but two, makes a bigger difference in the world in terms of helping people be successful in what they're doing, because there's nothing worse than good, hard blood and sweat and tears that doesn't really accomplish anything. And so as I started studying my clients who were successful in spite of me and the things that I knew, 
okay, well, what are they looking at? You know, what, why is this working for them and people in the exact same industry are failing at that thing? And then as you start to realize, it's not what we're taught as accountants in college and in accounting courses of debits and credits and mindless, you know, annoying stuff that we do for the sake of the profession, but we don't do to help people run a successful business. I got to stay somewhat within the realm of structured accounting to help people accomplish it and, and use the tools at bay, typically, you know, programs like QuickBooks Zero and, you know, NetSuite and, and all those. And so I really just started working through processes of saying, okay, well, here's the hierarchy. And this is, I cover this in the Simple Number Straight Doc Big Profits book, the first one I wrote 10 years ago. And I said, okay, there's basically four things that you've got to focus on to run a successful business. Number one is I got to clear distortions. And so what are the things that I'm causing in my data, either by myself or the direction of an outside tax advisor or somebody that I'm fine that if that's what you want to do for tax purposes, although I would argue that there's probably some reasons why you don't, you don't want to do it, but let's get to economic truth. And so that we're not having to do mental Olympics at the, at the end of each month to know, did I make money or not? And, and so the first thing is typically owner compensation. I was talking to a client of mine this morning, a successful real estate agency down in South Carolina, and he had spoke to a group of his peers and, and he was telling me that he just basically shared my message with all those guys about, you know, this, the financial success that he's had in his business. He's one of the top agencies, you know, in that region and making really good money. And he doesn't go on any sales calls anymore. He doesn't show homes. You know, he is running a business of other agents and the classic, you know, Michael Gerber thing of working on the business, not in the business. And, you know, and these other guys, you know, he's talking about the profitability that he hits and these other guys, you know, he, he's at, you know, typically 15 to 20% profitability, true profitability after yeah. taking a true market-based wage. And these other guys are saying, oh, I'm making 40%. It says, well, yeah, but, you know, but you're doing all the sales production. You're taking a $50,000 a year salary. You're not making 40%. You're lying to yourself. And so, and, and, and you see this all throughout and, and we, we always just refer to it as, you know, simply stated, if you got run over by a bus today and, and your family had to hire somebody to do your job, what would they pay them? And they might hire three people to do your job. They might hire a half a person. I got news for you. I mean, all of us can be replaced and some of us can be improved upon. And, and so there's a value number there. So we plug that number in, whether you stroke a check for it or not, you know, do, you know, make, do account for it and look at the true profitability. Once you get to true profitability, then you've got to look at, am I, pro, am I, am I at a sustainable level of profitability? In the first book, I did it by observation. We, we see hundreds and hundreds of businesses data sets. So I'm in a pretty good seat to see truth. And I said, in general, at 5% profit, you're on life support. 10%, you're a good business. 15%, you're a great business. And that actually is a pretty solid number for probably 70% of the businesses out there. Now, I now know, based on Simple Numbers 2.0, the why. And it really is your profit percentage target is really driven by the capital requirement that your business needs. Are you a high capital requirement business? I've got to carry inventory. I've got to carry accounts receivable. 
I get no trade support from vendors. That's a high capital requirement business. You need a higher profit in that case? Exactly. Because I, I'm having to invest much more heavily than a business that gets paid in advance and, and always is cash flow positive. I can afford to be very aggressive and reinvest in that business because it has a super high return on investment and it's got a very low capital requirement. And, and we love those businesses. I mean, we've got some business models that have as much as a 200% return on investment year in, year out, just because of that structure. But they're rare, but they do exist. And But you got to kind of look at your industry and say, what is that requirement? But that's now how we know, how we set your individual profit target. We've got clients that are wildly profitable at 3%, but it's only because they their distributors that they get vendors that support their cost of goods sold. So they don't, they're never really out of pocket, any of those costs. And so that top line revenue number is just a farce. I mean, it's really about gross margin. When you say they're insanely profitable at 3%, because they've got so little invested, the fact that they're making 3% is 3% net profit of the revenue is, is a phenomenal yeah. effort. Yeah. And, and the way that we now get people to think about it you know, in a low gross margin business where maybe you're, you're at 15% gross margin, your true economic top line is gross margin. So it's yeah. revenue minus your cost of goods sold. If you're a distributor, you don't make the product that you're distributing and you get terms from the supplier who's having you resell them. And so as long as they give you appropriate terms and I'm not really carrying the cash cost of my COGS until I get paid, I can afford to to live at a 3% profit, but it turns out to be about 30% net profit to gross margin. That's why it's a good business because it's still not, it's a high volume, low capital requirement business. If those things ever shift and because the numbers are so big, then all of a sudden you're in a state of disruption. And you, and if you don't understand the dynamics of the capital relative to the profit engine, you're you're playing with fire because you have something that may be far more sensitive than you may think. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so like the, the chapter that I wrote in Vern Harness's Scaling Up book, chapter 13, I talk about these concepts. Well, also in that same book, my good friend, Alan Miltz, you know, Alan talks about the cash flow story. And he and I are very much aligned on this idea of it's all about this working capital component. I call it trade capital uh, for a reason. But, but it's dealing with these elements. These are the individual signatures that every business differs. It's the reason why when you get people together, they can't understand each other because everybody's talking a different language. Well, the language that you're really missing out, the, the, the piece that you need to understand is a, 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 the difference in capital requirement. So like in my, my CPA firm, we change the capital model. So typically in the accounting world, you know, you do work, you build up work in progress, you build up accounts receivable, and then you build a client when you get done. And when we change to our consulting model, we change to a fixed price model that's more like a managed service provider business. We bill up front and we bill a consistent amount every month for a consistent amount level of service every month in our consulting services. And so we don't carry as big of a capital requirement as, as our peers, you know, because of that type of work. You've got no work in progress effectively. Exactly, exactly. We stay stay equal to or ahead, you know, in that process. Now, you got to sell a product or service that the market's willing to accept that. And some some products or services don't accept that. 
But yet we see, quite interestingly, businesses within the exact same industry that some are good at winning that feature from their customers to get paid faster or ahead, and others that just accept that, oh, well, nobody will ever do that. Well, did you ask? Did you present a value equation that that got those people to, to pay you sooner? Because the part that really matters is it's not about the profit percentage or the dollar amount of profit. And this is what the whole 2.0 book was built around, this idea of return on investment. And I want a return on investment of at least 50% or greater uh, as as a target. And we see most privately held businesses that are run properly, they're going to be a return probably more than 75 to 100% range. And so who wouldn't want an investment that's making 100% a year? Which, if you think publicly traded businesses, poor ones doing five, good ones doing 12, maybe. Exactly. So much invest in your own business, don't invest in stocks and shares. Is that your... Well, I think it's one of the reasons why, you know, when you see high return on investment businesses, it's also that marker of why that business is also can sell at a premium. Yeah. You know, because people look at it and they go, oh, okay, you know, this, this has, this has some, some legs to it that if, that if a buyer can scale it better than you can. But, you know, what's interesting is, is, you know, entrepreneurs constantly, you know, they have a good thing. They're constantly plagued by what I refer to as the belly full syndrome. You know, they get things going to a point where it's good and they just lose that extra edge to scale and push it beyond that. Because it's like, eh, you know, that next dollar is too hard. You know, and, and that's and that's their choice. I mean, I don't make that choice for them. I mean, that, that that's up to them. I just educate them on what that next step is. But but, you know, you see it in people that have locational businesses, you know, people that have multiple multiple locations. And it's like, yeah, we get within a region that we want to be, or I want to stay within a city or a state. And then it's like, yeah, okay, well, that next step, it's just too hard. It's just too much of a risk. And then they'll run it for a while. And then it's like, okay, then they're ready to sell it. And then somebody else takes it and they'll make it part of a, a bigger thing. Same thing in terms of whether you're, you know, just other businesses that you get stuck on scaling. You look at it and go, I'm making enough that, I'm just not willing to make a bet, you know, to get to that next thing. So how, what's your calculation there for return on investment? So what's in, what do you include? What do you exclude? How should people be thinking about that? Because so I guess there'll be some people watching this thinking 100% return on investment. I don't, don't think I'm getting that. Well, it's really easy. So the first thing is you're going to take out that sheet called a balance sheet that you never look at as an entrepreneur. And, and you're going to pull that out. And you're going to look on the bottom. If it's all on one page, you're going to look at the very bottom. If it's on two pages, you're going to look on the the second page. But there's this thing called equity. Equity is the sum of assets minus liabilities. You're going to start there. And so there is a financial term called return on equity. But return on equity is a very flawed calculation. Because as an entrepreneur, you have a tendency to use your business to do things that aren't really necessary for the business. (laughs) You own assets that the business has nothing to do with the operation of the business. You have tendencies to use the business as your own personal piggy bank and do things of, you know, loaning it money when it ought to be capital, borrowing money from it when it should be a distribution or a dividend. And so the first thing that you do is you take equity and you adjust it down for any dead assets that are not necessary for the operation of the business. Typically, shareholder loans, 
loans to related parties that aren't related to this business or goodwill. If I purchased a business, goodwill is a fake, it's a fake asset. I mean, you know, it, it's a plug number that says, hey, I paid a million dollars for something that I don't have assets to back up. It's a hope and dream that it's going to produce profit, you know, from its activity, from the rights associated to have it. Those are the most common assets that you take out of equity because you spent money, you know, to, to get those assets. So I need them to go away. And then I'm going to look on the liability side and, and move those liabilities to equity where I loaned money, I put capital in the business, structured it as a loan, but it really is capital. It is something that's not tied to, uh, you know, like a line of credit is tied to accounts receivable or inventory. Uh-huh. A term note is tied to a piece of equipment or a building. There's there's a direct asset to debt you know, linkage, in a capital loan situation. You know, kind of blend two terms together. You're putting money in a business. You might structure it as a loan, thinking I'm going to get that money back. The reality is, it only needed to borrow money because it's undercapitalized, and so that you move that debt down to capital. Once I've made those adjustments, what is left over is the term invested capital. So it's not equity. It is the invested capital that it takes to run an operating business. And I filtered out all the accounting who do that, that, you know, makes it clear. And it's that number that you compare to your net operating income or what's commonly referred to as EBITDA. So EBITDA divided by invested capital is your return value. And it's that number that we believe should be 50% or greater for a privately held business. And if you don't have at least at 50%, I'm going to challenge you as to there's something something wrong with your business model. Even if you have investors, so if investors bought into your business, they're not going, you know, we would take that capital that they bought that you took and then took off the table or something like that. And we would kind of normalize the, the balance sheet to just the operating assets and liabilities of the business. And so that's how we help a lot of PE-backed businesses get, keep sanity because their balance sheet is just an atrocious mess because of the transaction. But you've got to have sanity of what are my operating assets and liabilities? What's my true profitability relative to that? And that, that, that keeps you focused. And why, why EBITDA? I mean, it, it's a commonly accepted term of return. Now, I will say that you use... EBIT or earnings before interest and taxes, if you have a high requirement for depreciation or depreciable assets, if you're, it's just the fact that we live mostly in a society to where depreciation is not a, a significant number for most operating businesses. But I do agree that I would, if I do have a high capital requirement business, I would probably look at, at EBIT that is after depreciation because, and a, a book depreciation number, not a tax depreciation number. Because that's a more tr- a true cost of assets that's that's being spread out over their useful life. You know, so that's in 2.0. What else is new? Launch capital and labor efficiency ratio. You did labor efficiency yeah. ratio before, but you sort of come back to it again. So really kind of think of it as in the first book, I said, okay, the first thing is you clear distortion. So I'm looking at truth. Second thing is I'm setting my profit target. So I gave some simplistic ideas in the first book that were from observation, but you kind of jump to the second book to get that return on invested capital to really tune that in. So the, in the second book, then you've got a link, you know, you were talking about invested capital business, low margin, you know, have you got, is a sort of a sliding scale in that's in the second book where you sort of go, hang on, let's work. Cause 
the, the idea is just understanding right. what your ability is to grow and how much capital requirements that as you start to scale, we do have some some topics in there to help you understand. Can you grow cash flow free and not use other people's money? Or am I going to have to first start off with debt to support growth? And then eventually, depending on the rate of growth, do I have to go get outside money? Okay. And and there's those are pretty easily, you know, we believe those are easily mathematical uh, okay. proofs. But once I get my profit target, so then we go into step three. Once I know what my profit target needs to be and I'm not there, how do I do it? Well, there's one simple answer that's universal to all businesses. It's about the productivity of labor. There is not a business in this world that does not produce profit relative to the output of labor. Zero. I don't care if you're a product business or a service business. It still takes the productivity of labor doing their job in the relative, whether it's direct labor or management labor, sales labor, marketing. I mean, pick whatever functionality of labor, but it still takes labor. And it is the isolation of what is the cost of that labor and then what is their ability to produce margin output. It, it's never non-labor expenses that is killing a business in, in most cases. Now, you can, you can waste some money there, but at the end of the day, if labor does its job in every function, the business will be successful. And so let's just kind of walk through that and say, why is that? So I would tell you that the most important labor to get right is management labor. The people that generally are the owners and or the leadership of the business. It, it functionally, if those people do their job, direct labor will be productive. I, they're, they're managing, they're doing their job. If they're, so management labor has basically three functions. I must drive revenue. And so we can look at all the myriad things that drives revenue. You can, they got to control cost of goods sold. Am I, you know, drawing a proper relationship of revenue relative to COGS? And am I managing direct labor to work off of the gross margin of revenue minus COGS? Those three functions, that, that's it. That's what, that's what make, creates profitability. And if they get their job right, then you're just essentially then managing direct labor relative to gross margin production. That's kind of your governor of saying, okay, those two have to stay, you know, in, in perfect alignment. And, and the reality is I, I, we've got a, a model that we run. We've got a hundred company model of our, our consulting clients that are, all, these are all U.S.-based clients. We have clients outside of the U.S., but I, I don't include them in this. And, and we use it as kind of our insight to the economy. Because there, are, there is no really credible private company economic data to, to speak of that's worth a flip. And, you know, the, the Fed just kind of guesses at it and makes interpolations off of public company data, thinking of what they think the private market is. And so it's just a pretty, pretty weak, you know, representation of what's really going on. So we took this hundred companies. It's about a billion dollars of revenue. So I'd say a billion dollars revenue is pretty representative. And it's all over the U.S., all different industries. And, and so it becomes our index. And when I was looking at it, I looked back and I, I just did this two-axis graph that looked at revenue on one axis compared to all labor, regardless of director management, on the other axis. And when you put them on a two-axis graph, guess what? Labor and revenue are 100% perfectly correlated. <laughs> 
I mean, I mean, they are perfectly core. There is nothing else that matters in business. And so the thing is, is you got to understand where we at in the market. So when we have an expanding market of true gain of productivity, gain of, of demand, then revenue is going to pull labor with it. So as revenue goes up, I got to go add labor, add productivity output and, and pull and it's going to pull labor up. We're currently in a labor push scenario. Right now, labor's going up and there's this ever so slight revenue decline that is now slightly under labor to where people are late to the game adjusting pricing. But it will adjust. It has to adjust or else you'll cease to exist. And, and, and so those two things just work off of each other, you know, just like a perfect, you know, pair uh, that, that's always going to be there. And it's the companies that know how to do it quickly and not be late to the party and, and, and know how to do it elegantly so that I still win with the customer, but I win on the bottom line. Those are the ones that are going to win. And it's your labor management and output strategy that is the key to hitting that profit target that you set in step two. In, in that in that management management labor efficiency ratio, you're including not just management, but you're also including sales, aren't you, and admin. So it's right. everyone who's not in the direct labor line. The only time that we put salespeople in direct labor is if your business is sales. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't make stuff, I just sell other people's stuff. But if but in most businesses, your your one or two salespeople or business development people, those kind of folks. We put those those folks. That's not what you do. It is selling and marketing the thing that you do. Those people go into management labor, okay. you know, in that process. But at the end of the day, I mean, in the first book, I gave people a simplistic calculation that said, listen, if you're especially if you're uh, under a five million dollar business, this is a remarkable data point. You can just take gross margin. So take revenue minus cost of goods sold. Get to gross margin. Gross margin divided by all labor, regardless of type, should be around a two. It's just, a, you know, if you're slightly above a two, you're going to be probably 15 to 20% profit. If you're below a two, you're going to struggle. You know, there's a handful of businesses that can pull it off, but you got to be so skinny on the management infrastructure type cost of operating a business on a day-to-day basis that there's very few businesses that can pull off under a two. Now, as you advance and you start to separate direct labor from management labor, there's some, so you're taking direct labor against gross margin, you're taking management labor against what we call contribution margin. So after, after direct labor has been subtracted from gross margin, it's what we call contribution margin. And so that's why I say management labor is being held to this standard of a net number of productivity that comes out of your business engine. And so as you look at those numbers, then those are different ratios, but but essentially those are going to vary by industry. So this is really where you really, we have, we've got several industries that we've got a lot of data sets on, so we can really hone in on those. And so as you, you hone in on those, you say, okay, well, this is the number you got to be at or else you, it, you're not going to be in business very long. What's the spread of that? So, you know, the total thing is two. So I guess it's, it's more than two, but does it get up, does it get up to, does it get up to 10? No, I mean, so, so typically what happens is once you split it, actually the num the output ratios get bigger. So for example, one of the best examples early on, so we call them, refer to them as client zero, 
so our, our client who was in the landscaping industry, he was the first one that we did the split of the two to study it. And, and so we came to the conclusion that he needed to be a four direct labor efficiency. So of his gross margin to direct labor, you know, he needed to have four to one ratio uh, for his landscaping and irrigation. He had a mowing division that he was only at a two and a half. This is the power of simplicity. So when I say that to financial people, as, as we say on the farm, they're like a calf looking at a new gate. I mean, they're just kind of looking at it going, huh? You know, and, and, you know, he explained it to his $10 an hour guy that does mowing. And the guy whose comment back to him was golden because he was not burdened by sophistication. He just was very practical. He said, well, it sounds like to me we shouldn't be in the mowing business. And he was right. I mean, they, the mowing business just wasn't that profitable for the way that they were doing it. And so they actually ultimately just started contracting that out and just getting the margin for the for selling it, but not having to do it. And and once again, this is this this is this power of understanding this. What are the things that are worthy doing versus what are the things you want to get somebody else to do? You just make your margin off of not having to manage the complexity of that. And you see this throughout business today. There's a lot of businesses that are disaggregating their business model. They're breaking it down and saying, this is the part I want to do. I'm going to get somebody else to do this piece. And I got to leave enough margin in it for them to be profitable doing that piece. But it's just not worth it. That I don't want to do it. I don't, I'm not good at it. And it's kind of the old thing of, I've used this example quite often. If you're a manufacturing business, well, you're really two businesses in one. You make stuff and you sell stuff. You sell the stuff you make. Well, the first question I ask a manufacturer, are you world-class at making the stuff you make? And if you're not, maybe you should have somebody else make it and you just sell it. Are you world-class at selling it? If you're not, then you just get really good at making the stuff and get somebody else to sell it. What is the part of it that you're really good at? And if you can't be good at something, that's where you know the business market is pretty flexible. To You can find somebody to do that piece for you. But there's a mathematical, economic way of looking at what is the value in that piece. And so one of the questions, I guess, that we get when, you know, where do we put people in which buckets? What, how do you qualify yourself in your business? Are you, are you management or are you direct? What percentage do you have to be to, to drop in which, in which bucket? Yeah, so good, good point. A couple of fundamental things that we always say. We, we refer to it as a butt in a bucket. So we don't like splitting people. So you're either direct or you're management. So that's that's the first one. Secondly, I would say if you spend 30 to 50 percent of your time facing the customer, doing whatever it is that you do, you generally should be in, in direct labor. You know, and even in, in my role, the way I looked at our business, we, we merged with one of the top 20 accounting firms uh, last year. And, and so I still look at myself as direct labor because I spend most of my time still client facing, even yeah. though I'm still the, I'm the partner in charge of the office that, that we merged in. I'm still very productive in, in that sense. So I, when I'm doing analysis of our business model, I consider myself direct labor. But in most businesses, the entrepreneur, the owner, and the key senior leadership roles are going to be management labor, and everybody else is going to be direct labor. Here's the thing. Don't sweat it. Just be consistent. Don't move people from one to the other. You know, just put them in one bucket or the other. And I always 
you know, basically say, you know, figure out who's in direct labor first, and then by default, everybody else is in management labor. And, and also, and don't don't gross their salaries up. Just just take the just take their net salary. Yeah, I'm not trying to load it for payroll taxes or overhead or any of those things. I'm an I'm an absolute anti allocator. I mean, I think allocation techniques in finances, uh, in operations is generally just a jobs program for accountants. We just take money and start moving it around and allocate it here and allocate it there. I believe in directly associated cost. If I'm running a, a multi-segment set of P&Ls for a business, I'm really just identifying what's the revenue cogs, direct labor that I can get. That's my number one thing of I'm trying to get a segment analysis on. If it's a if it's got its own full business line, okay, I might get into my other operating expenses, but I'm not trying to allocate corporate overhead. I'm I want to look at corporate overhead as just its own cost bucket with no revenue. That's the easiest way I think to identify it. But but I've I've got a really strong segment analysis chapter in the 2.0 book that really will take walk people through Here's a couple of examples of kind of level one analysis, level two, level three. And if you really want to go, the most powerful analysis in segments is actually understanding the margin that you create from that segment activity compared to the balance sheet impact. How much am I carrying in receivables and inventory and AP for that segment and, and how, how much margin am I creating for how much I have to fund? And that's been eye-opening for a lot of our clients because once they started to see that certain activities just weren't as valuable as they thought, yeah, it was adding a little bit of margin, but the cash that they had tied up in it was just not worth it. You also look at overheads quite simply as well. Four buckets, I think, from memory. Yeah, yeah actually five. So we five. look at, so in operate, what we call operating expenses, but same synonymous term to overhead. Facilities, marketing, management, labor, all payroll taxes and benefits, and then other OPEX is just the catch-all bucket, you know, for everything else, kind of the noise of business. I was watching another webinar you did, and you were talking about one of the things that, just as you mentioned marketing, it just reminds me that one yeah. of the things that you said when you look at this, because you've got this big data set, that the companies that aren't growing as fast as they would like, often it's because they're just under-investing in marketing. 100%, Absolutely. Yeah, and, and we're huge fans of investing in marketing. Now, I will tell you, it's pretty much a crapshoot of how good people are at doing it effectively. And, and I think I really encourage people trying to find what are the marketing within every industry? Who are the people doing it right? What are the techniques that really work? And, and there are some people that we have that do a really good job of it. But I really do think that the people who want to grow really struggle in terms of finding effective support, whether it's in outside agencies, um, you know, and are, you know, hiring a person to do some of it, just in general strategy of what is it that, that you're going to go do. But that shouldn't deter you. I mean, it, it, it really is, you know, marketing is like going to the craps table. You got to go to it with a base enough money that you're willing to play the game enough cycles to hit the win and find it. And, and, and I think it, it works essentially that way because for anybody to tell you that they know how to make something happen, mm, no, I, I'm not buying it. Do you think about marketing the same way as you think about launch capital? Return on investment in marketing is another way of using your launch capital idea to, to decide yeah. whether the experiment has worked. 
Yeah, so launch capital, that's we talk about this in the 2.0 book. As we say, we we named the baby. So launch capital has been hiding in plain sight for centuries uh, in business. We just didn't have a name for it. Because if you think of the term capital, you think it's balance sheet. I put money in to, to buy this asset, to fund this activity. The reality is marketing is an expense. Well, that's on the PL. And so, you know, and and the way I always frame it, everybody who's listening to this, you know, when I say this, I want you to think about your business for the last 12 months. What did you spend money on in the last 12 months that was a spend and you expensed it in the last 12 months, but the benefit is going to be in a future period? By default, that's launch capital. I made a capital investment to intentionally lose money now to make money in the future, but it went through my PL. It didn't go through my balance sheet. And, and that is really 90 plus percent of the business growth of all the businesses we work with come through launch capital, not anything else. Number one on the list is marketing. Number two on the list is hiring labor before it can be fully utilized, both direct or management. The third would be technology development. One of the common things that's happening quite frequently now are people developing, investing in their own operating systems that augment some base platform that you buy off market. But essentially, people are finding there's no one system that truly works the way that they want their business to work. So they invest in system augmentation. Well, all of that is, is essentially tech dev. Some projects get out of hand, but it's because we track it this way. We look at it and we extract it from the operating performance of the business. And so to give a client clarity of where their business is working, I want to take all the launch capital spend in a period, take it out and put it below net operating income. That way, how is my normative business performing? Because if I'm throwing a bunch of launch capital spend into it that it didn't need to do what it did, I'm feeling bad about a perfectly good business that I'm just investing in the wrong things to get it to grow. By isolating that cost below the line and saying it's the number one use of profit. So the first use of profit after you generate profit is to reinvest back in the business. Because if this business is going to make us a 50 to 100% return, well, I want to invest in it. Let's, let's throw some money back in and keep it going. So you then marketing is all below the line or, or you put marketing above the line if it's needed for the general yeah, so, operating of the business. Yeah, it, so there's, there's kind of a maintenance marketing spin, but if I'm doing a surge spin, I'm really trying to, to push the market for future growth, not to maintain. Because, you know, there's people who have to market every month just to, uh. you know, so if I have to, you know, do I have ongoing customers or do I have to win a new customer every transaction? So there's kind of a maintenance marketing spin that we keep above the line. But when I make a surge spin, I'm going to go attack a market. I'm going to open up a new location. I'm going to launch a new business line. Okay, that's a surge. That's a launch capital spin. And then you want the return on that to not be dilutive of the return. You want it to be accretive. Right. And so right. that says that once you know what your return is, you can then say, well, how much are we going to spend? And on this project, mm -hmm. In the next 12 to 24 months, are we going to get the return that we need to positively impact the return? There's some things you probably don't do. 
And I think that's been the power of the idea. There's a great case study in the Launch Capital chapter in the 2.0 book of a, an actual client of ours that used marketing spend as their catalyst. That was that was how they grew their business. This company grew from 700000 a year in revenue to $10 million in five years. And they were profitable the whole time, didn't use a dime of debt to grow. They funded their own growth, but they had one specific catalytic spend, and that was increasing marketing spend every year. Now, the way to hold marketing accountable is it's not the increase in revenue. It's not the increase in gross margin. It is how much did net income increase because I spent this money. That's the true measure of did it work. And I think a lot of times people that want to justify their marketing activities, they pick a number that's too high in the value chain to justify. Oh, look at all the new revenue I got you. Well, was it good revenue? Did, were we profitable at that revenue? And, and just because it's activity doesn't mean it's good. I've got another slight complication for this. So when you're thinking about the impact, say, of marketing, particularly in a recurring revenue business rather than a consulting business, I mean, even in a consulting business, you might get repeat revenue even if you don't have recurring revenue. Do you include you know, second-year, third-year likely income into this thing, or are you just looking at... I mean, I, I really think people have overdone the lifetime value customer argument to justify a lot of bad ideas. I'm trying to say, listen, on an ongoing basis, if, if I spent $100,000 that I wouldn't have spent otherwise, did net income go up 50000 That's as simple as I can get the equation. And I'll give you 12 months to get it there. But essentially, in that second group of 12, that's the, from the 12th to the 24th month, I've got to see profitability being higher than the 100000 that I risk because that means that I've covered the 100000 that I spent and I got 50000 more. You spend a hundred, but you want 150 back. Otherwise, you're not getting the 50% return that is your minimum for your business. Exactly. And like you said, once you frame it that way and you make people walk through the exercise, they'll look at, oh, well, that'll, never, that'll never produce that. And it's like, good, let's find a better idea. And it's like, you know, just go to the next next idea because there's just not enough juice in, in that one because there's this high tendency to look at activity measurements in marketing. How many leads did I get? What were my conversions and, and you know, all of those? And it's like, I, I, all I need is dollars, folks. I mean, I can't take, as I always like to remind people, so, you know, you can't take a percentage down to the grocery store and buy groceries with it. You know, I, 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 I got to have dollars to buy groceries. And your marketing, uh, I'm just thinking about the way you expressed it earlier. Your marketing, your marketing salaries are in the management labor. Management line. labor. And then your marketing activities are in the marketing line. But then when we talk about launch capital, that might be people and activities. That launch capital spend can be in any of those categories, you know, that, that you want to isolate and hold separate until it becomes a self-sustaining operation, you know, in that process. So like, for example... Uh, it's, it's easy to kind of think of it this way. If you're launching a new location, I'm not going to mix a new location that's losing money in with my existing mature locations because it's just going to distort the overall performance. I'm going to keep the net of that activity isolated below the line for presentation purposes until that store gets to a, a, a positive you know, profitability. You know, Most locations actually do 
get profitable and start cash flowing in the second or third month in many cases. You know, what's interesting in location businesses, it's the capital investment that is the barrier for people and, and that keeps them from speed of expansion. And, and this is kind of a good case of where you use the concept of understanding return on investment. So like one of our clients who was spending $250,000 to launch every new store that they decided to open, I was showing them, this is well, the good news is when you, you know, they don't own the, the, you know, they just lease space and retail. And I said, instead of you spending $250,000 of your own money to do the build out, if you can get a bank to, in essence, take the 250 and tenant improvements and spread that over five years and essentially turn it into rent. So this is a case where accountants fall all over themselves and get this, this really kind of messy. It doesn't have to be. That payment for that five-year note of the build-out is really just rent. I could have gone to the landlord and had the landlord include that 250 and let them finance it. Now, the challenge is when you go to the landlord to do it, they, they charge you about 100 grand more. And so, so you know, to, to be more practical about it, you want to carry the risk on that. And some landlords just won't carry the risk. But it would be the same if the landlord was willing to do it and just charge you more rent. Well, the accountant would be happy to just show you have higher rent for five years and then drop down to a normal number. Why is it the same thing if you, if you just go finance it yourself? It's the same thing. And so, so as we showed this client, I said, if you put your own money in, your stores operated about a 60% return on investment. If you don't put the 250 in as capital, you count it as rent for the first five years, your return on investment goes up to 150% because you're not putting out $250,000 at the very beginning. You're at, you're at risk for it. I, I don't want to discount the uh, obvious to that. But the belief is, is you, you're opening a location because you feel like it will last and, and those are the capital barriers that keep people from expanding rapidly is because it takes too much capital to launch it um, for the return you know, that, that's received. And if you take the capital component out of it, you have a much lower barrier of success to launch and get that next location open and operate. One of the things that that 100 companies gives you is, as you say, it gives you a barometer of the economy. So. Yeah. What are you? What are you seeing? <laughs> uh, something totally different than what you hear on the news media. You know what was interesting because the the original model, you know, it goes back to 2013 as a base year, and and so and so we started noticing it then. So we, we only used 50 companies, but it still continued to be the same same result. And really, the U.S. economy, you know, from 2014 forward, has been at double digit growth from what we've seen ever since, except for 2019. So this is pre-COVID. Pre-COVID was the first year it had dropped to 8% growth. And my contention was, if you go back and actually look at what was happening in 2019 before COVID hit, is we, we ran out of labor. And I, I've already told you, the only way that revenue goes up is you got to have labor to be able, I mean, demand has exceeded capacity for quite some time. So then COVID hits, and there's this disruption in March and April and May, but then things kind of start to settle back in. We actually finished March of 2021. So the full COVID impact year compared to the previous year, we're, we were up 9%. <sighs> we weren't down. 
Now, there's winners and losers. There's companies that were down. There's companies that were massively up. And this doesn't count PPP. This is, this is just pure operating activity. So what we saw during that, though, were a couple of things that people can take to the bank. Number one is the companies that were very profitable, sustained it with little to no impact. They got, they got efficient as soon as there was disruption in the market. So they trimmed labor. We saw kind of a, a quick trimming, about 10% of direct labor. Kind of go back to the Jack Welch theory back in the heyday of, of GE, where he said, you got to fire 10% of your employees every year and fire that bottom 10%. Well, that's kind of what the best companies did is they kind of looked at their ranks and skinny uh, as much as they could. We only saw about a 5% reduction in management labor. Most people felt like their management teams were, were pretty hard to replace. And so they kind of committed and kept those people in place. But then you saw people kind of come back. And so really labor was up significantly for the year because uh, whatever they trimmed in those first three months of the hard lockdowns, they, they turned around and were really struggling to catch up and hire in that process. I still think that I don't see that 9% year over year, though, was probably almost all price increases. I don't, I don't think I don't have a way to measure, you know, actual true output. But my, you know, we talk about it a lot on every call with clients. And I think for the most part, you know, a good bit of that's price increases and, and, and still continues. And probably driven by the 2019 labor shortage, because as you were saying, these things oh, cycle, yeah. so it, it goes through. Um, there's a couple of questions here. Callum wonders whether you see labor efficiency ratio as the replacement of um, productivity metrics such as utilization. Well, I, absolutely. So LER, labor efficiency ratio, is actually, to me, the top measure of true output because you know the, the two measures in, in labor are realization and utilization. And both have significant flaws to them. And so at the end of the day, I think the number one measure of true value of employee output is what revenue did they produce or what margin did they produce, better uh, stated, divided by what did I pay that person for all of their time? I don't, not just their direct labor, uh, what did I pay that person? So like in a services business like mine, I know the revenue by person. So our system adjusts write-offs rateably to everybody who worked on things. And so, so I can get down to true revenue by person. And I obviously know what I paid them. And so I've, I've got a very strong LER by person. I know it by team. The four things that we do, we do consulting tax, financial statements, and uh, outsourced bookkeeping. I know the labor efficiency ratio by each one of those teams. And the thing is, it's not a static number. It it drifts up and it drifts down and drifts up and drifts down. And they'll, some will be up and some will be down. And, you know, because here's the thing about labor. Labor is the only cost that comes to work every day with an attitude. It, it isn't a constant output, no matter how good you are at managing it. And, you know, but I, I think it truly is the number one true measure of economic performance when it comes to labor. Okay. Very good. And in fact, Callum's from X and we started doing a project with, uh, with them around, they've picked one of their, one of their team's projects mm -hmm. and we're, we're trying to see what labor efficiency ratio looks like for that team. But we did it for the whole company and we could actually see what the labor efficiency ratio is and how it tracked back to net profit. So that's oh, been absolutely. really helpful. And the key is, is also as you, you know, as, as we look at data, so you have to be careful. You know, if I if you just look at labor efficiency ratio as a static point in time, you don't know if it's good or bad. 
the key is if you watch it as it moves across time, as long as everybody's consistent about which bucket they're in, I, I'm, it's a true measure of am I getting more output? Am I getting less output? And if I'm getting less output, why? And I think one of the things you say is don't do it month on month, do it rolling three on rolling three on rolling three. Right, right. Or, or if yeah. you've got a lot of variability over the year, do rolling 12. That's right. Yeah, exactly. So that, for that reason. Um, uh, Alan Wick says, uh, how do you think about R&D spending, capitalizing versus expensing? R&D to me is a launch capital spend. So it's a classic launch capital and I like it below the line. Here's the thing about capitalizing. I mean, I, I think the, the, the financial world kind of falls all over themselves over it. I like to see it as a use of profit. And once again, I'm trying to also then hold it accountable. So I'll give you a good example. So one of my clients is a, uh, has products that they develop and sell in the um, youth therapy. Uh, they, they work with a lot of kids that have uh, sensory deprivation issues. Mm-hmm. And so they develop products, you know, for the therapist in that industry. And so they're constantly having molds made and then products produced. Most of these are plastics uh, is, is the primary components. And, and so as they do product development, we hold all their product development costs down below net operating income. So we see how much he's investing out of his current stream of profits. But then we also know of the new product launches, how much gross margin, because in in that case, there's no additional operating expenses for the next product sold. They have a a, a systems in place. It's going to be there regardless. So we look at new margin created for the new products relative to that investment. And so far, he's done really good. I mean, he's well above the 50% return standard for all the new products that he's developed. And it's really given them a focus of going which products to focus on and which have legs enough that will sell enough at a good enough margin to make it worth the investment in the molds and the design. Shelly from uh, Friends got, I guess, a similar question. In their business, she's obviously saying that they've got capital investment for a long time ago. So when thinking about... Uh, do you chase only ROI on launch capital? And did, she was just asking for clarification on is the minimum 50%. So one thing we specialize in are, are what we call 20-year overnight successes. Uh, and so it, it's not uncommon for a business to go many years and have no return on investment you know, over that period of time. And you know, you could argue, was it possible? Was it not possible? But all of a sudden, once we get involved with them, all of a sudden they find a way to be profitable. And, and most of them will, will tell you that it's like, dang it, I should have been doing this a whole lot sooner. So I look at it as two things. You look at an existing business and say, of what has been invested, what are the things that I can do to make it at a proper, I, I can't fix what the last 15 years has done but I can get it profitable with what I have today. I mean, when we do a consulting project, I mean, that's the number one thing we talk about is how do we get you profitable today of what you have invested? And are there enough knobs to turn? I would say in 99% of the cases, that's possible. You can, you can at least get to a minimum acceptable return on investment with what's already there. And it was just change of thinking and change of framework. Then, it's a question of, okay, well, what can I spend? Where is my most valuable spends to then improve the business even further? It may not even be in scaling. It may be I can make some investments and just be more profitable with what I got. 
And and that's a possibility. If I can be, be more profitable, what I got and scale, well, that's a double bonus. That's magic. And and that minimum of 50 on new products, that's because you think any entrepreneurial-led business should be doing at least 50%. Yeah, I'm trying to not, you know, I, I'm trying, I, I want to make every new activity accretive, you know, so absolutely. Okay. Um, I've got one last thing I'd like to finish with, which, because I think I've been retelling your story, but I'm not sure I've been getting it right. <laughs> and and you've got this example where you say you, you got a client $10 million in an hour because he was going to sell, but you persuaded him not oh, to uh, sell. Yeah, it's my, it my $20 million hour. $20 million. So look, I just thought we'd round it out. Tell, tell everybody that story. So in the new book, I actually kind of go through the story in the new book. Uh, I call it the replacement return decision. And I'm actually pretty close to getting one that'll be probably about a $50 million hour uh, here if, if the deal closes, you know, but uh, on the same thing. But but essentially what it was is client, you know, had built a great business, been client for 15 years. We'd been pretty much doing his work from the beginning. And, you know, good business, very profitable fully capitalized, no debt, cash flow positive. And, you know, it says, I'm tired. You know, I think, you know, you know, I'm thinking about selling. He says, well, you know, that's up to you. So he hires an expensive investment advisor to help him run a, a competitive offer. So they get 10 offers. Seven of the 10 came in at 40 million. And so he comes to see me and, uh, you know, his advisor said, well, because seven of the 10 came in right at 40 million, we think that's the market value. We think you should say yes. And so he comes and talks to me because he's on one of our consulting agreements. He can talk to me anytime he wants. And we sit down and I go, all right, here's the deal. It's not enough. And he looks at me like I'm an idiot. And I said, listen, it's really, it's really pretty simple. I said, if you take 40 million after tax, you're going to clear $30 million. And he's currently, he was making 5.2 million a year in profit. And I, I said, the first question that you got to ask is where can you take $30 million after tax and invest it and make $5.2 million in return? Somebody said to me, who, who can't live on $30 million? A guy who's spending $5.2 million a year. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, because it, it works out to be a return of 17, 17, almost 18% return. And I said, I don't know anywhere you can get 18% return that's legal, you know, year in and year out. I said, you might, you know, but, but I'm just telling you, practically speaking, it, it's a framework to say, no, it's not enough. And so, you know, so we went through that and, and he goes away. A week later, he calls me back up and says, well, I got him up to 60 million. <laughs> so and he got him up to 60 million because he could say no. I mean, it's like there was nothing impending that, I mean, you know, he could say, oh, I'm tired. I said, listen, you work you know, you work 15 hours a week and 14 of those are not in the office. I, I don't think tired is, is the proper, you know, description. You know, I said, you might be concerned about the the continuity of things. And although things actually in his business actually continued to grow, he actually gave, it, it truly was worth it because it was on an upward slope and continues to be this day. And, and, and I said, you know, absent of any dark clouds, I mean, I think you're just leaving money on the table. It's your choice. I mean, you know, I, you know, you make your own decision. I'm just giving you a framework of thinking. And I'll tell you, I mean, we've used this numerous times since I came up with the idea. And it's just provided incredible clarity to a potential seller to know what a good number is. Now, the, it doesn't say that, I mean, if you can't get to that replacement return number, because once he got to 60 million, you take 60 million after tax, he clears about, you know, probably 40 
uh, $48 million. And, you know, and then you take $5.2 million into that. Okay, that's a return that you can probably replace, you know, potentially, you know, with investments, you know, but, um, but really at the end of the day, it just gives you a framework of thinking. And, and you start to understand that there's a reason why, you know, when people get a premium in a sale, it's because somebody with money is willing to pay that price to get that return on investment. People, you can't sell it to somebody internally for that price because it would never produce enough cash flow to retire the principal. And this is kind of a big issue. So we've had one this past year, client sold for a really nice multiplier. He called me up two years ago and said, hey, I'm thinking about selling my business to my employees. I go, well, that's great. Do they have any money? He says, no. I mean, I, you know, I'll, I'll just sell it and take it back and know. He says, well, here, you know, I, I ran the numbers for them. I said, at best, they could, you could probably value it at $10 million. And I said, now, you and I both know that if you put this business up, you know, for sale to the highest bidder, it's going to be 25 to $30 million. How much do you love the employees? You're better off selling said, it for $25 million and giving them money. I, I, exactly. Well, and, and, and like I said, I, you know, and I, I asked him, I said, well, how much do you love your employees? This is not that much. <laughs> and so, and, and they've, they've just recently completed that sale at bigger than that price. actually. Yeah. And, and so a lot of it is people just don't have frameworks of thinking about these things. And it's like, I, I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm just here to quantify it. And once we quantify, you make your own decisions. You know, and, you know, I mean, nobody, nobody should be able to tell you right, wrong, do this or do that. At that point, it is more so here is the practical data. Now you make your own decision relative to that. And it's proven to be probably, I would say, second only, I, I would say the, the concept that we've come up with that I'm the most proud of is what our definition of a fully capitalized business. So why, you know, and that number is you should have two months of operating expenses in cash with zero drawn on a line of credit or else you're not fully capitalized. And we firmly believe in a, running a fully capitalized business. And I would say that the pandemic proved that the stability of our client base was incredible compared to the market because they had followed that full capitalization advice and they got through that disruption with flying colors. Being able to give somebody a definitive number of saying, this is how much cash you need to have in your business and get that line of credit to zero. And I'm, I'm not saying don't have a line of credit, but use a line of credit for what it was intended for, not as a excuse of being sloppy with your cash. Another fantastic insight. That's brilliant. Thank you very much indeed for your time today, sir. We'll put all your contact information in the show notes. Super. All right. Thanks. See you soon. Good luck, everybody. I see you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. 
Thanks, and I will see you next week.